Let's now turn for our scripture reading to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, and we'll begin uh, reading at verse 12 and continue uh, through the first verse of chapter 4. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, last time we considered uh, those words, uh, verse 17, which uh, exhort us to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And uh, that is such a broad command that I suppose the danger is that it seems so so general that it uh, sounds rather impractical, and it's it's hard to actually apply that in terms of our daily uh, words and thoughts. Well, that would be a mistake uh, to kind of just dismiss the value of this because it's so broad. But it's likewise true that uh, the rest of this chapter does get uh, quite specific, and it gets very practical. Uh, as to basic relationships of life in which uh, these uh, spiritual priorities are to be carried out, exercised. Now, uh, these relationships that are addressed, of course, they don't cover every kind of situation that uh, is to be found among God's people. It doesn't uh, address specifically the situation of those who are widowed or divorced. It doesn't uh, address uh, specifically those those cases in which uh, there are mixed marriages where uh, a husband or a wife is a Christian and their their spouse is not a believer. Uh, it doesn't address a variety of dif- different circumstances that no doubt were present also in the congregation there in Colossae. Uh, but even so, there are ways of thinking behind the specific directions that are given here that do apply to everyone, everyone here. 
uh, regardless of their age, regardless of their, their marital status or their, uh, their jobs and their relationships, uh, in, in their, their daily work. And the most fundamental principle that is taught here is that God's people are to serve Christ. And they're to serve Christ in all the relationships of life. Relationships at home, relationships, uh, on the job, at work, or at school. Now, not everything is addressed specifically, but that principle certainly applies, uh, to all those different circumstances that existed in the church there and that exist among us today. But we are going to look at those specific, uh, relationships that are addressed in this passage, beginning with this call to serve Christ as wives and husbands. And wives are addressed first here in verse 18. And actually that is kind of a reflection of, of the pattern that we find also in these others, other specific relationships. It's as if uh, Paul addresses those that are in a position uh, that calls for a kind of submission or obedience and then he addresses those who are in a in a position of authority of one kind or another. So it's it's wives first, then husbands, then children, and then parents, and then servants, and then then masters. And you know, commentators will discuss the reason for that order. And it's hard to be certain or dogmatic about this. It could very well be that uh, Paul reserves the the, the more weighty instruction. Uh, second, because he wants to leave that upon the consciences of those who are in positions of authority. So that they are reminded that their, uh, position, uh, is limited. And it is to be governed, uh, by God's word. And, uh, and, uh, by addressing them second, that could serve as an important corrective to any false conclusions that they might draw uh, from those previous directions to wives and to children and to slaves, as if that somehow gives uh, authorization for excessive uh, use of that uh, position that others occupy. Uh, but certainly, uh, as we look at these directives and all these relationships, we're looking at uh, instructions from God's Word that are quite countercultural, And again, that's true of all of these different relationships. And uh, that's, that's especially the case with these repeated references to submission or obedience. Uh, the very words in our, our society are judged to be rather offensive and perhaps uh, degrading and belittling. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Well, that gives rise to all kinds of assumptions that people might draw from such words. Does this imply that wives are somehow uh, inherently inferior to their husbands, that they're less important? Well, the Son of God submitted to His Father. Does that mean that the eternal Son is somehow inherently inferior and subordinate to the Father? No, no. It was a kind of governmental arrangement for a specific purpose that is in view with regard to the obedience of the Son to His Father, even unto death. So it's a kind of governmental uh, arrangement. It doesn't imply inferiority of essence. Nor is it degrading to woman, women, even, even as it was not degrading 
for the Son of God to uh, willingly subordinate himself to his heavenly Father's will. And again, that the very idea that that to be in a position of submission is inherently degrading. That's a very unchristian way of thinking. All of us live in a whole variety of relationships in which there are subordinates and uh, uh, those in positions of, of uh, authority in a whole variety of different contexts. And to judge all these relationships as degrading, that's dehumanizing. That notion really is an assault upon the dignity of people as if that were threatened, as if that were undermined when we occupy places of, of, of submission to others under God, whose will and wisdom is reflected in the way he orders things in human relationships. Or the idea that submitting to husbands involves the notion that wives are are required to do whatever their husbands say or whatever they want without any kind of limitation as if they're some kind of a slave. Well, that's a completely misunderstanding. It's a distortion of what's involved in this relationship. Now, these are all mistakes that people made. But the fact is that you could answer all these mistakes that people make and that wouldn't remove the offense because there's something deeper that underlies our instinctive reaction to any kind of direct that call us to subordinate ourselves to others. And what is that? Well, it's our individual inherent pride and our tendency toward autonomy. You know what autonomy is? That's self-rule. Remember the first temptation? It was basically an enticement to autonomy. In other words, Eve was lured away from her position of subordination under God's word, and Satan enticed her away to subject God's word to her judgment, to evaluate it on her own terms and decide whether or not it was wise or good, and in a sense, be a law unto herself. And it's that tendency that really defines what is at the heart of sin and that plagues us to this day. We don't want to submit to God. Or even the way that's played out in terms of human relationships. And that's a problem that is native to us all as fallen. So we do need to listen to what the Bible says about such things. We need to actually listen to what it says here uh, with respect to wives. And yes, there's no getting around the fact that that submission, the very word, means to subject oneself to another and it's actually a term that's often used with respect to military rank. If any of you have any experience in the military, you know that there are multiple layers of authority and accountability. And uh, that doesn't mean that some people are necessarily even smarter than others. There are all kinds of things that might account for their position. But there's a kind of rank and a kind of order. And that's what the Word of God has in view here. And it involves yielding. Uh, to that order. God appointed the husbands who were created first, or man was created first, uh, to be the head of the wife. Uh, that's the Bible's definition of husbands. Husbands are the head of the wife. It doesn't say they ought to be. It says they are. And God appointed them to that position. And uh, the wife is called to yield to this position as a kind of leader in the relationship. That's one way of, of, uh, of stating it. 
But we have to notice something else about the language of our text, and that it says that wives uh, submit to your own husbands. And you notice that it doesn't say wives are called to submit to men in general, as if women are to submit to men on the job. No, there are many jobs in which men are to submit to women because their foreman is a woman, or their boss, or their manager, or the owner of the business is a woman. And they're called to submit to uh, to them. It doesn't mean women submit to men in the church. Because men in the church have a position of authority over all women, and women are somehow to submit to men, period, in terms of uh, spiritual relationships. No, actually, all the women here this morning have the very same relationship uh, to the elders that that I myself have and that all the other men of the church have, and that is one of submission to them in view of their office and their position. It's not a matter of, of, of women submitting to men. It's a matter of uh, all God's people submitting to those whom Christ has appointed as leaders over us. And, of course, there's mutual submission within those offices themselves. But the point is that the passage does not speak a kind of subordination of women to men, period. It has to do with a relationship in the marriage. Submission is also further defined in this passage by the words, in the Lord. And in Ephesians, a parallel passage, it uses the language, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In other words, by faith, they see the Lord in terms of his appointment of this relationship. And that also makes uh, this submission a matter of Christian service. It, it involves a matter of their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they serve in the context of these structured arrangements that, that he has appointed in his wisdom and his love. And uh, that really is to shape our attitude towards submission in general, right? That's carried out uh, throughout this passage also in other relationships. Uh, it's not subordinating, our, subordinating ourselves to people as such, period. No, subordination and uh, positions of submission to other people is always an exercise of faith. An obedience that is ultimately to God and his way of governing human relationships. That not only shapes our attitude, but it also uh, determines the limits of this submission, right? In verse 18, wives are submit to their own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In the form for, for um, uh, marriage, it speaks of uh, wives submitting to their husbands in all things lawful. So there's a limit to that uh, relationship with respect to submission. But then we have to ask the question, what actually does this submission involve? And I'm going to list a few things. I realize I can't flesh these out in detail, but uh, certainly it begins with an attitude, an, an, an inward attitude. In the more elaborate uh, treatment of this subject, uh, the passage in Ephesians chapter 5 concludes, let the wife uh, see that she respects her husband. So it's an attitude of, of respect. It's also addressed in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, which says, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by 
by reverence. And then in contrast to outward adornment as the main thing, Peter goes on to say, rather, let your adornment be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, with this attitude, a very Christ-like attitude, isn't it? And certainly an attitude that is to characterize Christians in general, but here it's applied specifically to that of wives. Secondly, it involves an accommodation to a husband's lawful uh, wishes or desires. There's this interesting passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that describes uh, what it means to be married, where it says that uh, the, the woman who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now, that's just a, a statement. It's not a command. It, it doesn't say that the, the women ought to do this. It, it's kind of just a description of the kinds of things that normally characterize the marriage relationship. I had a professor at seminary that, uh, um, in dealing with these things, referred to the actual creation of woman as an helper suitable to man, as a help meet for him, one that is comparable to him, and one that complements him in the terms of meeting his deficiencies, right? The whole account of the creation of woman is in view of the deficiencies that became evident when Adam tried to name the animals, and it became clear that it was not good for him to be alone, and he needed help. And he would say, men need help. And he says, women need to help. It's almost like it's in their DNA. Women are very much inclined to think about pleasing their husbands. And husbands, we need to treasure and value that and not squelch it, not discourage it by unkind behavior. Because most women do that rather instinctively. They care for those needs. And that's certainly part of uh, the woman's calling as uh, as a helper for her husband. In that connection also, it means uh, to yield to his leadership. Uh, the authority of husbands is that of leadership. And, and that means conforming to his will and desires. Again, I think we might say that probably in a normal, healthy marriage, most decisions are made jointly. The relationship is defined, first of all, by companionship, by mutual service of Christ together. And actually, the way these relationships work out, it almost becomes invisible and kind of natural in uh, in Christian homes. But uh, in terms of specifics, whereas uh, decisions may be arrived at jointly, ordinarily, if there is a disagreement, submission means yielding to uh, the husband's wishes, leaving the responsibility with him, with a good conscience. Cheerfully, trusting God. Now, that's in a case where there is a, a difference with respect to decisions that are made. But again, the matter of, of generally following leadership implies a, a biblical view of the relationship where often the husbands are called to take initiative. It can be frustrating for wives if their husbands never take initiative and give leadership and things that are really important because they want that from their husbands. And they want to follow that initiative. 
Then fourthly, it means practicing the duties of managing uh, the household in love. In, uh, in Paul's letter to Titus, uh, he exhorts the older women of the church uh, to admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may be not be blasphemed. It's almost like the most elaborate, specific directions that are given to wives here is to be communicated by older women. I think that says something about the importance of fellowship in the church, of relationships, because preaching the word of God can give these general principles but the application of these things in terms of the different kinds of relationships, different cultures in which we find ourselves, they have to be worked out with wisdom and love. And I tell you, the experience and the maturity and the wisdom of older Christian women is invaluable here to help out newlyweds, to help out younger women who might confide in them and talk about the struggles and the difficulties and the questions that they might have about uh, such relationships. And so the older wives, the older women have an important role in terms of fleshing out some of these details in terms of specific situations and cases. But these are very broad parameters in terms of managing the house. You look at Proverbs chapter 31 and you read of this virtuous woman who exercises a, a considerable amount of discretion in terms of spending money and managing the house. And in such ways, he do, she does good to her husband and not evil all the days of his life. So these are sketchy, I realize, but we got to move on. we got to look at God's will for husbands. And in this passage, it's likewise rather short, and uh, it's... Uh, Rather loaded, but I hope it's also recognized as sweet. Because love is the key word here. In verse 19, we read, Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. And that is the main directive that's given to husbands. Likewise, in Ephesians chapter 5, where it's elaborated, uh, it's explained more fully, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself uh, for her. And again, the, the uh, most probably obvious but um, significant observation that we can make at this point is that love is commanded. It says, husbands, love your wives. That's a command. It's an imperative. And what that means is that when husbands uh, say to their friends or a counselor or to anyone else, I just don't love my wife anymore. That's not some... Uh, just statement of, of some sad development that occurred for which they're uh, not responsible and for which they can do nothing about. Falling in and out of love. Don't know what I'm going to do. Can't help it. That's not biblical love. To say I don't love my wife is a confession of grievous sin. It's an acknowledgement of a failure to obey the Lord Jesus Christ and do what He commands. Husbands, love your wives. It's not a matter of feeling. Certainly it is grounded in, in affection and feeling that is from Christ. But it's practiced. It's demonstrated in, in action and behavior and words. 
Husbands, love your wives after the pattern of Christ. And that means living with them. Peter, Peter actually brings that out when he says, husbands, dwell with your wives. And we might skip over that little word and fail to see its significance. But the point is that husbands are to live with their wives in such a way that they show that their goal is not just to get away and do their own thing, but they do value their wives' presence and company. They're happy to spend time with them. Christian husbands care for their wives' happiness and their highest well-being. And actually what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with respect to wives, it says the same thing about husbands, right? The married man cares for the things of this world, how he may please his wife. That's a description of a of the norm, the natural kind of relationships where husbands care about their wives. They care to please them in love. They take the initiative also, likewise, in, in spiritual leadership. 1 Corinthians 14 uh, assumes that when wives have theological questions, when wives have questions about the interpretation of Scripture, that their husbands can give the answer. Right? It's in that passage that deals with relationships of of uh, brothers and sisters in the church. And it says that husbands, if they have questions, are to ask their husbands at home. Now, there's a there's an important assumption there, isn't that? Isn't there? That is that husbands are able to answer their questions. So husbands, in order to love your wife, you have to know the Bible. And you have to care for their highest interests, their spiritual well-being. Husbands who love their wives provide for their material comfort, they provide for their health. They care about their safety. They're sensitive about their emotional life and their fears. Husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding, is what Peter says. As with the weaker vessel, as one with needs that uh, you may not be able to relate to yourself so directly, but require attentiveness to her and the differences that may exist between you, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Because if you don't do this, God isn't going to hear your prayers. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the point here. Because it says, lest your prayers be hindered. You no longer have an independent, private, spiritual relationship with the Lord that can bypass your relationship with your wife. It just doesn't work that way. You have to care for your wife. And then negatively, there is this negative command that says, don't be bitter toward her. And we might ask the question, well, why? Why does it spell that out? Don't be bitter toward them. Well, I think the assumption is that this could be a tendency of husbands because they're sinners. And their wives are sinners too. And this could be the result of real or perceived faults, weaknesses, sins on the part of their wives that can then be used to justify attitudes of displeasure, ongoing communications of displeasure, dissatisfaction, discontent, a grievance with a wife that is then acted out with harsh words or bitter words or downright meanness or neglect 
or withdrawal of affection. And you see, in all these things, husbands, when we do this, we are doing just the opposite of what the Lord Jesus Christ does. Because when it comes to our relationship to our bridegroom as the church of Jesus Christ, the fault is always on our side. So sometimes it's helpful for the sake of argument. Okay, just imagine, just suppose, you aggrieved husband, that all your grievances with your wife are in fact true, and it's all her fault. If that were the case, that especially is the kind of situation that ought to draw out Christ-like love and forbearance and compassion and actions that are aimed at saving her. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her by the washing of water, by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Now, we can't do that. We can't save our wives. But the model and the pattern that husbands are given is that of Christ. And that especially is relevant when it comes to dealing with perceived. And again, often those those uh, weaknesses or failures are perceived. They're a reflection of your own uh, imagination or a reflection of differences that exist among you. But perceived or real differences ought to be addressed in a Christ-like way. In this context, let me uh, say a word to those who are unmarried and those who would like to marry and remind you that the first thing of first importance is that you marry in the Lord. And that's more than just marrying someone that has the same theology as you. And it means more than marrying someone that goes to the same church that you do. Because the fact is that after perhaps a few dates, you're going to know your uh, boyfriend or girlfriend better than the elders do. And if you see things that raise red flags, indications that uh, there's not a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, don't just fall for his good looks or his good humor or his friendliness or attentiveness to you for a while. You need to be sure that he is born again. You need to be sure that when you stand up in front of the church and promise to submit to your husband, that you're going to be submitting to one who is going to exercise his position of leadership in a Christ-like way, with Christ-like grace and wisdom. Of course, that works the other way around, but it's a very, very important point. You need spiritual unity in a mutual relationship to Christ. That's first and foremost. Somebody said this is going to be a long sermon when they looked at the outline and I got to hurry up or it's going to be too long. We need to serve Christ also as children and parents. And the key word for children here is what? Obey. Children, obey your parents. Now, in the commandment, the word means honor. The word is honor, right? And that's a more comprehensive word. It's a word that clearly extends beyond uh, the relationship in the home where children are minors. Yes, they're called to honor their parents as well, but that relationship changes, doesn't it? Adult children are still to honor their parents, but they no longer have the relationship of of, uh, of that kind of authority structure that characterizes life in the home. There's other things that we can note about this brief command, and, the, and, and that is, first of all, that both parents are authorities in the home. 
In other words, the chain of command, if we can speak in such a way, is not dad commands mom and mom commands the kids. Nor is it dad commands mom and the kids in the same kind of way, as if it's the same kind of relationship. No, no, no. Parents, mom and dad together are the authority in the home. And secondly, again, it might be obvious to us, but we can't take anything for granted nowadays. And sometimes parents need to be taught that they aren't their children's buddies. Their main calling is not to be friends with their kids and to make them happy. They're not caregivers. Well, they are caregivers, uh, but that doesn't define their relationship as if it doesn't involve what the Bible really highlights in terms of their position of representing God as authorities in their lives. Now, certainly parents love their children in a far deeper way that involves a buddy-buddy relationship. They would die for them. Children, you know that their parents would die for you. They quickly, happily give their lives to save you. They love you that much. But they're not afraid to tell you what to do. And that's true when you're a teenager, too. And they're not afraid to see that you learn to obey them because they care about your soul. And they understand that the home is training ground for self-denial. The home is training ground for learning not to be ruled by our feelings, not to be ruled by our emotions, not to be ruled by our desires, but to be ruled by an authority that comes from outside of us and that is higher than us. And in the home, that's mom and dad as representatives of God. It's in the home that we learn to submit our wills to God as that's reflected in human relationships. Isn't it significant that the first commandment that moves from our obedience that we owe to God to human relationships is the fifth commandment? Children, honor your father and mother. And we understand that that uh, uh, extends to all lawful authorities whom God places over us because we are taught to see that God governs us by their hand. And that's a kind of understanding that will make for peace and good order and happiness when it is observed in faith, especially in a Christian home. Because, you, because your parents want to exercise their responsibility for your good and for your salvation. And the Lord wants you to know that. Jesus loves you, you children, and he wants you to know that he is pleased with you when you learn to obey your mom and dad for his sake, right? Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And then thirdly, fathers have a special relationship because fathers are addressed then specifically. In verse 21, fathers do not provoke your children. Now again, parents are the authority in the home. The fathers have a special responsibility. And it may be suggested here that they also have a special danger that they have to be aware of related to their authority. Children are capable of deep exasperation. Children are capable of a kind of profound discouragement 
with lifelong effects. That can be the result of unreasonable demands placed upon them by a father or expectations that constantly communicate to their kids that they never measure up. It's never good enough. They never get commendation. They never get expressions of approval and affirmation and expressions of love and acceptance from their dad. They need that. You withhold it, you're going to exasperate your kids. Or excessively harsh correction by words or discipline or erratic or grossly inconsistent demands or discipline. I say grossly inconsistent because I dare there's not one parent here who dares to say, I'm always consistent in the discipline of my kids. I'm always consistent in making clear uh, what I expect from them and following up on it. No, that's a name, but that's one area where we all fall short. But if it's grossly inconsistent and simply reflects dad's moods or impulses, and so kids never know what to expect. One day they can get by with anything. The next day they're spanked for everything. That's exasperating. And then finally, neglect. A selfish indifference for children. Where dad kind of leaves raising the kids up to mom. And I have to say that I think that's probably worse and it's probably more damaging than being a tough disciplinarian. I'm not advocating being a tough disciplinarian, but, but sometimes fathers can be a little bit too tough. Even, even as they exercise discipline and love combined with instruction, they take it a little too far sometimes. They probably know it. They ought to apologize if they do it. But I think worse, more harmful than sometimes a tough disciplinarian is a father who neglects his children and leads them as teenagers acting badly because they're crying out for attention. They want some guidelines. They want some consequences. But they didn't get it from dad who doesn't care enough for them to correct them and discipline them and direct them with God's word. Yeah, I know there's a lot there, brothers, but uh, the Lord holds before us a high standard that should bring us to our knees and keep us there throughout our lives, praying for grace to be good husbands, be good fathers, to be good wives, to be good mothers. I would also note that the contrast is spelled out in Ephesians where it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but, and then the positive, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Paul doesn't include the positive here in verse uh, 21, but we need to see it. And then finally, we're to serve Christ as servants and masters. You know that people from all classes of the Roman Empire came to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. That means people in positions of authority, government positions, positions, people from the military, people among the elites, people among the working class, and slaves. And you see, what that meant is that slaves and those who, quote, owned them, although no one can have real ownership in another person, they're members of the church. They're in Colossae. And they're addressed as living with Christ together. In whom there is no male nor female nor 
bond nor free in terms of their access and equality in Christ. But there they are together, and they're addressed by the Holy Spirit as to how they're to conduct themselves. Why does the Holy Spirit say, Masters, free your slaves? Why doesn't the Apostle Paul say, Christians, organize freedom marches? Show your Christian faith by organizing a march protesting the government uh, policies with respect to the allowance of slavery in the Roman Empire. Why not? Well, I think the simple and most direct answer is that uh, the gospel is not a revolutionary um, message. And the apostles were not revolutionaries aimed at overturning uh, even those existing structures in society with a revolutionary mindset and method. They were spiritual revolutionaries. They recognized that profound societal change only takes place when the hearts of people are changed. And in the meantime, they addressed the existing situations in such to mitigate its evils and in such a way as to demonstrate that Christ can be served and followed in all different contexts and relationships of, of life. And that slaves can serve Christ even in the context of slavery without a slave mentality. Actually, slaves are exhorted to know themselves to be free men in Christ. In other words, as they serve their masters, what are they doing? They're serving the Lord Jesus and their minds and their hearts and their purposes. And they're spiritually free in that situation. Now, no doubt the seeds for societal change were sown. We have hints of that in Paul's letter to Philemon with a suggestion of liberating Onesimus, receiving him simply as a brother. But in the meantime, these relationships are addressed as they stood. But apart from observations, the question is, well, how does this section apply to us today? Does it? Well, the principles here apply to us. They apply to us also with respect to our jobs. Uh, they apply to us with, with respect to our vocations. Consider verse 24 where it says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. I was in a union shop years ago, and I worked in a factory for almost eight, uh, eight years, Teamsters Union. And they're always coming around with grievances. Forgive me if I'm repeating myself publicly on this. <laughs> but I, I made clear to my foreman that I, I, I work for him. And if he wants me to do something beyond what the strict union laws require, I'm willing to do it. Because I'm not bound by those uh, laws and that set up this hostile adversarial relationship between management and labor. He appreciated that. I had good relationships with uh, with my bosses. And see, that's uh, that's because I understood that I was serving Christ. I wasn't serving Bob Palmer. I still remember his name. I understood that that was part of my Christian testimony before the world. Verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men. You work under the eye of Christ, not the boss. Our, do, our desire is to please him by our diligence, by our honesty and integrity, by our cheerfulness. And that should be true however menial our job might be, as judged by this world's terms. I did piecework for many years. Not only in this meat processing plant, I did, I did piecework in a, 
in a machine shop where I was operating a punch press, stamping out registers, hundreds, maybe thousands of them every night, one thing after another. Some of you might have those kinds of jobs. And you bring home a paycheck. And you're able to provide for your family. And you have more time to serve in the church than some businessmen or contractors who are so involved in their work that it greatly limits their time. You have an eight-hour job, and you're able to do your job, and you're able to serve the Lord with more time with your family. and with your That's an honorable job. I don't care if it's um, changing beds, mopping floors, sweeping floors, whatever it might be. And I think we need to be careful, brothers and sisters, if we talk to uh, others in the church and say, I could never do such a job, as if it's so far below you. Well, maybe the reason we could never do such a job is we don't have enough grace and we don't have enough humility. Now, indeed, it's nice to have a job that you enjoy, that you love, and it's good to encourage the pursuit of that. But we should not show contempt for any kind of legitimate lawful. Labor, but we should honor the people that hold those jobs. Honor the person that does room service in your hotel. Talk to them. Respect them as individuals. Any kind of honorable labor is pleasing to the Lord when done to Him. So that principle applies. Also the fact that there are superiors and there are inferiors in the job place as well. There's management, there's foremans, there's bosses, there's owners. There's laborers. And yes, we have to do what our bosses tell us. And sometimes that might not be so pleasant. And sometimes we can change jobs if we don't like it because we're not slaves and we get paid for our jobs. But sometimes the circumstances are tough. And sometimes it's not just so easy to change your job. And so rather than go to work like a crank with a hostile attitude towards your boss, who's kind of unreasonable, This, brothers and sisters, is an opportunity to demonstrate the difference that being a Christian makes on the job. There are yet superiors and inferiors. In Titus chapter 2, Paul says, uh, exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, not but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. In other words, such conduct is honoring to Christ in your Christian profession. Another abiding principle here is that those with power, those in management or ownership, they must strive after fairness. They must strive after justice and the way they hold their position. And they, as well as the workers, must do their jobs and live their lives in view of eternity. Right? He's addressing Christians. Masters are to know that they have a master in heaven. Those that plod along in unrewarding work are to know that they will receive the inheritance of the reward in time. So they do their work, they live their lives in light of eternity, in light of their accountability to their true master. You know that every position of authority, and I think I want to, you know, just emphasize this briefly, it's memorable. Every position of authority involves responsibility and accountability. And that ought to teach humility. 
no matter what that position of authority is. It's not simply a position to exercise power at your will. No, it means that you're responsible. You're a steward answerable to God. There's accountability to it. And that ought to teach humility in our treating treatment of other people before God. We live in times of social disintegration of marriage and family. They're under attack. Selfishness and inconsideration of others rules our society and the workplace and everywhere. And we need to know that living together with Christ in true harmony, it's a high calling. And that's, that's true spirituality, by the way. It's where the reality of this life in Christ becomes most evident to the world. It's so crucial to our Christian witness, a witness of the beauty and the goodness and the stability, the kindness, the fairness that ought to mark the lives and relationships of those who know God. What a challenge should lead us to pray, Lord, let the, let the beauty of the Lord be upon us. Establish the work of our hands. Amen.